William, you make you made a music tape. <laughs> <laughs> I did a I did a good thing. Buried my heart underground. Y'all in your mouth and dropped me six feet underneath. They don't know how. First of all, congratulations. Congratulations. I've been working on that record like almost since I knew you. I think. <laughs> Practically, yeah. It's I've been writing. I think I started writing it four years ago. About so or four and a half years ago. So yeah, which is when I met you. So yeah. Didn't you do a track that was played during Black and White? Yeah. So. Yeah. All right. So the people have asked about that song ever since for that two episode. Years. <laughs> Where is this this ghost song? Yeah. So here's a little bit of the backstory of Cosmos. I started working on this record. I started writing it four and a half years ago. Uh, then about three years ago, started recording the record. Um, most of the record was done, and the record got put on hold because of a, a legal dispute that happened. And so when we did the black and white episode, the album was about to be released. So we were wanting, I gave it to you as kind of like a promo thing. Oh, by the time this podcast comes out, the album will be out. (laughs) That did not happen. (laughs) So like, see, I live in LA, right? Like everyone in LA has this story. I didn't realize this where they're like, yeah, dude, I did a record and the label, like we just had this or it got put on hold for this reason or all sorts of things happen. So the album got put on hold. We released black and white with several of the songs on it. And everyone's been asking about it ever since. And so, yeah, eventually... Because um, it was about to come out when Black and White... It was about to come out. And yeah. so, yeah, I I had to, you know, I had a legal situation happen. I had to get a lawyer. It was not fun. I've never had a lawyer in my life. Yep. I now own my master's, which as an artist, you know, is not is a rare thing. Most artists, unless you're doing independent music, you don't own your master's. So I was able to um, gain ownership of my master's. And the album became mine. But by the time I got the record, I was so exhausted (laughs) that I had to kind of take a break Mm -hmm. from it all. Like I had some health things come up as well that just kind of forced me to stop touring and traveling. And I just took a little bit of a break. And so then by the time I did, I felt like part of the record started to feel outdated, Um, which truthfully, it really wasn't. But I'm a perfectionist. So I then kind of went back in the lab and started redesigning the record and reproducing parts of it. So part of the record is what was happening four years ago. And then part of it is a lot of things from the last two years or a year and a half um, of me going back and reproducing, re recutting vocals, changing maybe some lyrics or changing some 808s. And so what you have in front of you is a repackaged, uh, well, I'm not going to call it repackaged. It is the album, um, but it's gone through different evolutions of time itself, which is kind of in line with the whole theme of the record. Do you love the record or do you hate the record now after four, <laughs> four years? I actually, I actually, I could say this and I don't think every artist can say this. I actually believe Cosmos is a masterpiece. Yes. Wow. Yeah. Oh man, I'm here for that. Yeah. It's, it's a masterpiece y'all. Um, partly because of the internal struggle with the record, but also everything on the album has been thought through every, every wrong note, <laughs> every vocal take. Every synth, every 808 uh, was intentional. And you know how it is, uh, Vish, right? When you're working on it, you could always change something. There's always like, I can make that better. We could get that sound better. And I finally got to the place with it where I just had to release it and let it be. Because again, it's been three three to four years. uh, And that's sometimes way too long to be working on a record. So I feel happy with the record. There's always little tiny things I wish maybe oh that could be. But then again, that's always going to be the case. So I think it's a masterpiece. And 
I will say I don't feel emotionally connected to the record anymore. Hmm. Maybe because I've heard each song so many times and it's been reproduced so many times that in my head, I love it. In my heart, I'm writing another album. Hmm. So in that way, I think because it's been such a long journey, uh, I haven't been able to feel it doesn't feel brand new to me. Yeah, I so relate to that. I know a record's done usually historically when I just don't care anymore about doing anything else on it. <laughs> like, well, I don't want to hear that anymore. I think it's done. Yeah. <laughs> yep. Maybe that's the five like overthinking things. And yeah. Like, um, I don't want to think about this anymore. Yeah. It seems like it's good enough. It seems like it's good enough. And, uh, and you know, and I get other people's opinions, you know, I passed her, what do you guys think of this? And I like to weigh, you know, my friend's opinions. I've showed you tracks I've worked on through this mm-hmm. process, you know, and I get people's opinions and, and then there just comes a point where it's like, it is what it is. Like they say in Hawaii, it is. What's <laughs> her relative said that to Lisa one time. It was like a real dramatic, real dramatic fight. And she goes, like they say in Hawaii, it is what it is. <laughs> <laughs> Who says that in Hawaii? I don't know. But we've, it's become a thing with Lisa and I. <laughs> As they say in the deep forests of Ireland, have a good day. <laughs> It sounds like it provided a lot of comical relief in the moment it was said. William, is there something about about hitting the wall with the perfectionism, where the perfectionism couldn't take you any further? Like, I'm curious about this language that you used around, like, accepting it and kind of letting it go, but also preceded by that statement about, like, I'm a perfectionist, and I'm curious about the relationship between those two and the making of this album. Yeah. Okay. Maybe perfectionist is the wrong word. How about this? I like to constantly critique and edit. Um, Meaning Mm -hmm. I always think something can be made better. And to me, part of my writing style or the way I approach music was always in a... I I started writing at 18 with an acoustic guitar, taught myself how to play. And I wrote songs to process emotionally complex things. Like that's what you do when you're 18. And I listened to a lot of Lauryn Hill, Bob Marley and Ben Harper. And I was just (laughs) processing heavy things. And that's what I was doing. But in my actual music career, much of what I did was collaborative. Who My former label, who I used to be a part of, we wrote a lot together. We collaborated together, not just in the songwriting process, but also in the producing and the editing process and the mix process. So we were giving each other feedback on mixes all the time. And so I love that process. I actually find a lot of creativity in critiquing and editing. And, you know, I uh, my friends, uh, Johnny Swim, are working on this new record right now. And I was over their house last night and they played the whole record for me. And... I have to even like edit myself in moments like that because I often think uh, I hear a producer's ear and I'm like, you should add this. You should do that. But that's not really what they're asking me for. <laughs> right. So but that's also part of my creative genius, too, is like I'm hearing this. I also hear what's missing a lot. Oh, I mean, there's this is missing or that should be that or you should expand this like and I just naturally do that. And some people I think I can come across as critical or, or you know, giving feedback that isn't wanted. And it truthfully is. But I also do know that that is a gift. And so for me, I can do that with myself. Sometimes that becomes really harsh. <laughs> and I've had to learn to have a, like a good relationship with myself and be kind to myself in that because I can judge myself pretty harshly. But I do find value in critiquing because I think I've always been better when I've been critiqued and when I've allowed my open myself up for that. So this record was a constant editing. And I think the quality of it to me speaks to... Um, or at least the way it's resonating, is because I opened it up for lots of critique and just, you know, I didn't do the Beck thing, right? Which is like just total purist, do everything yourself and then just release it and hope everyone thinks it's genius. Um, 
I really opened myself up to take some some hits on it, mm. which I think it only makes it better. I'm a ship without a shore, sinking to the ocean floor, falling deeper, deeper. There is nothing I want more. Feel the rush of ecstasy. Water's crashing over me. Barely breathing, breathing. You're the only air I need. Back and forth in motion, striving for devotion. I'm lost in your love. think about that part in ourselves as we call it the critic almost like we're externalizing it and giving it a name like it's another it's another being it's another energy inside of Mm. us and so I hear I I hear you talk about the critic inside yourself and how strong and how useful the critic is at helping you refine a project did the critic get fatigued or did another part win out like an like the acceptor the acceptance part the part that might have said like I'm I'm done with this or did the critic yeah get tired i think the the, i think the critic did get tired Mm. because i do think it was way too long to hold a record it's a long Um, time maybe yeah it's a long time and i mean i'm not i'm not a kanye west on any level right he could work on a record for four years but granted he's pulling from probably 200 songs right like i was really just critiquing about 15 16 songs (laughs) (laughs) for three years oh man who am i right Uh, but um and then there are songs that didn't make the record for that reason and i was you know you know didn't feel like that (laughs) yeah how many times do you think you've heard each of those songs oh my god oh my god that's why i feel pretty neutral about the record like i do enjoy it i think it's a great record but again i'm working on another record in my head already so Um, emotionally I'm not connecting but I, I totally agree with you Hillary about the giving the critic like its own name and energy and force and then knowing when to sideline him yeah. and to say hey buddy no more crit- critiquing you have a critique deadline now yeah. <laughs> and you just have to accept and let it be because I've literally had this record for the length of how some people raise children I felt like when now that the album's out it's like I had this child that I birthed but I kept him home for four years and now he's going to preschool and like, okay, now go meet the world. You'll meet some bullies and handle yourself. And now, you know, daddy's going to find a new project, (laughs) you know, or daddy might raise another child. Did you, did you find that the critic early on got in the way? Did it take a long time to get these songs out? Like I know for me, I have had to learn to shut the critic down Mm. during, during times of, of the creative process. And especially early on, because it's like as soon as that first chord comes out, the critic can be there like, that's fine. Is there a better chord? <laughs> or it's like if you can totally get paralyzed with that. Yeah, and you absolutely can. So did it, did it slow you down early on or have you learned how to early on shut it down then turn it on? And Okay, so I think in the creative process, it is best to not judge what you're doing as it's coming out. Mm-hmm. So I have this uh, kind of philosophy of just let it flow. So I just let things go. So if we're in the studio, if we're in a writing session or we're in the studio producing something, I just, I let it be on the front end. I don't heavily critique on the front end. I only really critique on the back end. Mm -hmm. So meaning, because I want to, I feel like real creative flow doesn't happen or the good moments don't happen unless there's freedom of expression to just be, you know, so I don't bring the critic in on the front end. 
in some ways I know initially what I like and I don't like in a melody or in a, in a lyrical idea. So in, in that way, that's the type of yep. critiquing happening for sure. But I mean, I will run with a bad idea for a long, long time yeah. before I actually call it a bad idea. Mm-hmm. Uh, so in my creative flow, I think the more I can just let it flow and just, I'm doing hand motions. You guys can't see just <laughs> flowing and let the music flow yeah. and <laughs> let the, 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 me- the melodies flow and, and let it feel imperfect, whatever perfect is right. Like perfect to me is simply high define a meaning. I like it. Mm-hmm. Uh, but even if I don't fully like it, let it just be. And then what I'll do is then like, if I'm in a writing session or I'll create an audio file and then I'll go back and then I'll listen to, Oh, I love this melody, but I hate the way I resolved it. So I'll either come up with another resolve or I'll put it to another writer. Hey, I love this melody. What's a good way to resolve this? And then they go, Oh, what about this? And I go, Oh, I love that. And then that's how I'm, you know, that's how we make a melody. Same with the lyric. I love this idea or this concept. I love this phrase. Like, so there's a song on the record called you and me. My producer gave me a, this synth beat with some 808s behind it, right? 808s are basically like a trap beat. And Thank you. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Science Mike <laughs> does not in, know what 808s jump are. Jump in with questions. He's there's, ner- there's other people out there that don't know what 808s are. Yeah. You, just so you know, guys, Science Mike is nervously like shuffling a deck because he doesn't know what to do with this you conversation. Not you got to be like, <laughs> nothing nervous. normally okay. we're like, wait a second, which part of the brain is the hippocampus? <laughs> so... I'm great. I'm great at jumping into conversations at that time. That's my specialty. Nice. You and me. So that's the track that was on the black and white episode that people loved. had a trap beat, but they didn't know what it was. And it kind of sat in a vault somewhere on a file in a studio somewhere for two years, just quietly resting. But my producer came to me and said, hey, I've got this beat. I've got and I got this idea for a song. Like, I kind of want to sing like this question to God. Like, is it you and me, God? Is it you and me? And he had the melody. He's like, he's like, is it you and me? Is it you and me? And he's like, I think it needs to be you and me. That's what this song feels to me. I'm like, oh, so I took his idea and just ran with it. Right. You see this in comedy and improv, right? It's you just you just agree. Yeah. Mm -hmm. All right. And then you work within the framework and the worldview. So I, I instantly grab the mic. He's playing the beat. We put a vocoder on my voice just to kind of give it like a, a cool feel. And then I'm just like, you know, and I just, and I'm flowing. And then I'm like, you've been silent so long. Yeah, you've been silent so long. And I'm just making it words off the top of my head. It doesn't have to make sense. And that's how the song came. So out of the idea of asking the question, God, you're quiet. I don't hear you. I haven't heard a whisper. I haven't heard a pin drop. I'm trying to hear and then we just fill in words you know i've been broken holding on for dear life praying that the storm stops yeah and then we get to the chorus and i'm like tell me i am for now even in my ups and downs i've been calling and then that is how we made that song and then i instantly was like oh this is dope what if god responded to us and then we put a a woman as the voice of god <laughs> responding to me yes. yeah for all my feminists out there yeah heretic
<laughs> the only thing come better from than a, a sex joke to me is a heretic joke. <laughs> if you can combine them, that's you're right down the right down the middle. Oh yeah. Yep. Do you ever find that when you're doing that kind of scat stuff that you keep doing similar words? Yeah, always. Let, yeah, when I do scat stuff, I'm always like, why do I always want to sing? Something <laughs> tongues. A certain sound. Yeah, it's like a pattern of tongues. Well, for me, oftentimes, because I was doing worship music for a million and a half years, uh, it was always scripture. Mm. It was always like some, you know, uh, all creation loves to worship. Yeah, yeah. You know, like <laughs> the heavens declare your faithfulness. Yeah, when you're coming up with the mail, you're always just plugging in like the popular Christian. <laughs> These words that just are going to get the hands raised, and and so my heart will worship, you know. Like, and uh, so for me, yeah, the, I scat a little bit, but for me, I was always instantly searching for yeah. biblical language. To, yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, I, remember, I there's this guy I remember. He did a freestyle for us backstage one time. He was like a youth pa- youth pastor kind of speaker guy, and he did a freestyle rap for us, and it was kind of impressive. I was like, whoa. Mm. And he threw in weird words like ice pick. Mm. I was like, okay, you're just throwing this out. But then he did another one and he said ice pick again. I was like, you <laughs> phony. <laughs> you know, people can reuse words, right? I know, but ice pick. <laughs> okay, William. That just doesn't. <laughs> you were ridiculous. You were so ridiculous. Hey, can you take us back? Like, Back up all the way. I mean, four years is a long time, and it sounds like it has changed so much over the four years. But what did you want Cosmos to be? What is it? Why Cosmos as a name? Like, fill us in. So Cosmos, I took the word from Ken Wilber's book, Theory of Everything, where he talks about, he defines Cosmos, and he actually defined it. Mike just fell over. (laughs) (laughs) We love Ken Wilber, don't we? I love Ken Wilber. I do too. I don't know what this guy's got a problem with. Well, I do know actually. He's fine. (laughs) In the book, you might like this because, you know, Ken Wilber says a lot of great stuff. He Uh, does. He said uh, Cosmos, he used the word K because uh, in the Greek, the original, the Cosmos word in the Greek starts with a K, what looks like a K or we interpret as K. Um, And he called it the integration of mind, matter, soul, and spirit or soul and body, excuse me. And for me, that I found that to be so a theory of everything, so consolidating, or it felt like it was a picture of my own journey of looking to integrate, feeling disintegrated for so long and feeling um, abstracted from myself and, and separating head from heart. And, you know, and Mm. often through religion, I've, I had been going on a type of spiritual deconstruction journey that was kind of leading me towards integration of wholeness in my personhood in my identity in my way of being, um, especially where, right when you're a Christian musician and you're well known and you're traveling the world and you've got to kind of put on this face, not even a, a bad face, just the, the, the cheerleader face. You know, I've got to always be peppy and happy and encourage the saints. And that's my job is to show up on a stage and, and get people pumped for Jesus. <laughs> Literally. Can you do it? Can you do like, can you just pump us up for worship right now? It's 9 a.m. Really? Pump me up. Good morning, church. Good morning, church. Listen, I want you to come down to the front. If you feel free to worship, like we're just going to lift our hands to the Lord today. Okay. Amen. Now hug your neighbor next to you. All right. Here we go. One, two, three. You are good. <laughs> you are good. You are good. We will worship. We will worship. We will worship. We will worship. <laughs> this is so ridiculous. What and now doing? we have to put a trigger warning on the episode <laughs> for all the evangelicals.
Hey, this is Mom. I um, just talked to Erica. She just said that you may not be coming, which is uh, fine. Uh, we're looking forward to seeing you, but take care of yourself. She said you weren't feeling real well. Um, Psalm 21 is the word for you for today. Um, breathe. Take your time. Um, stop and pray. Cover yourself. Uh, cover what you're doing. Asking for God's direction, His grace and bind any opposing forces that are coming to try to hinder you. So I just breathe over you in the name of Jesus, and I say peace, peace to your spirit, to your mind, and to your soul. Love you. Bye-bye. So Ken Wilber, Cosmos, Theory of Everything. Yes, Ken, Theory of Everything. I wanted to write a record that was honest for my spiritual deconstruction that was happening. I was challenging biblical authority. I was challenging white theology. I was challenging even some of the, some supernatural culture stuff then revival culture that didn't feel healthy to me. And as being someone that was seen as a part of that and a face of that to some level, you know, I, I was definitely seeing things that I didn't believe in. And so I had to, it forced a, a real wrestling of my faith. Um, especially like again, what, what didn't you believe in? There's always the exaggerative nature of any type of like charismatic thing that I've been in for the majority of my life, right? Like you, how many people are being healed right now? Oh my God, raise your hand. Oh my God, 300 people just got healed. Look what God did. Wow. So you are literally claiming right now 300 people got healed of something (laughs) and there's no like investigation around this. (laughs) No, I'm not even saying it can't happen. I'm just saying, can we have some like verifiable, like We got clipboards out in the lobby. Yeah. Because, I mean, it's just like, it's just about a feeling. I feel healed right now. Okay, great. All right. You know, so there's there's that. You know, also, too, um, I think a lot of it's languaging because I do believe that, you know, as Whitney Houston says, I believe in miracles, right? I believe in miracles, sure. But much that's being claimed as miracles, I don't know if I, I believe in or what that actually like looks gold like. Gold teeth, you're not into Yeah, like, teeth, I mean, so. feathers and diamonds and... I mean, some people don't even know what we're talking about right now, but there is a subset of people, probably a large number, that know exactly what we're talking about. And just these phenomenons that were happening in all sorts of churches that people were claiming were signs and wonders. And uh, I think they were, they more made me wonder <laughs> than they were pure <laughs> signs from heaven. <laughs> Sorry, I love a good pun. <laughs> <laughs> you know, uh, and so, I mean, but that, that, I mean, this phenomenon is global, like, right? Like you go to, especially you go to third world countries and you see a lot of like supernatural claims. And, you know, we talked about that a little bit on the tongues episode. And um, so just being around it, and I, I mean, I grew up watching TBN and, and there were prophets and apostles and people, you know, like if you give X amount, God's going to bless you. And I would like send money to TBN and <laughs> thinking God's going to give me a miracle, you know, you sent and, money to TBN. Oh my God, as a teenager, I did that all the time. I used to watch what? Benny Hinn. How much have you given to TBN? I, in my, in my teenage years. And like early adult, I probably, which is why you're, like, gave, you I probably gave several hundred dollars wow. easy. Which for a teenager. Yeah. That's a lot of money. That's a lot of money. Yeah. Like, because that's I'm like a lot of money now. Yeah. Yeah. Because I'm desperate for a miracle. And the prophet says, did you get any oil or anything? I never got the oil, but I used to watch those like Peter Popoff was like, you know, he sends the whole anoints the oil and sends it to you. And yeah. like all those, uh, TV prayer preachers cloths, and prayer cloths. Yeah. I mean, I saw it on the local church level as a kid, even in black church, but then like souped up on a, television global you know and that's a Christian that's stage. a big it, it looks produced like a local like a local show or something but that's like a multi oh, multi yeah. million dollar 
Totally. And some of those like Christian television broadcasting stuff globally reaches more people than some of our more popular TV shows in yeah. America. Like wow. it, it just has an audience. And so I grew up thinking that was real and that was all like the way the universe worked and the way mm-hmm. the cosmos worked. And then realizing through many years of do, getting in my 30s and then realizing I don't actually feel fed by this. I'm tired of seeing the same prophetic words getting recycled and called the prophetic word for this year. I'm like, wasn't that what you gave seven years ago? And it didn't actually happen. But now it's supposed to, wait, huh? Like the year of favor again. God says the year of Jubilee for you. And he says this year, we're going to see the revival that we've been saying was going to happen for the last 50 years. But actually this year, we're going to see the first sign of the harvest. Here we go. Right. And it's so exciting though. Well, it's, it's like a spiritual lottery, right? It's, you're always putting the coin in and and pulling it and hoping to get the magic number. And if we pray enough, if we put enough people in a stadium, if we, you know, and so, I mean, not to demean anyone that has, because I believed, I believed for a long time and I finally kind of woke up and said, who does this benefit? Right? Like the whole structure of American Christianity I'm talking about, right? Like, who does this benefit? Like, does it actually benefit the people who are giving the money? Does it benefit the people who are actually in need of the healing? Does it actually, be, you know? And so anytime you have to stand on a stage and get people cheered up so that they can then give their money, I just think that's but worthy of know, a deconstruction. Like the creator of the universe needs poor people's money so that he can have rich men fly around in airplanes to tell them that he needs their money. That's, yeah. That's the plan, William. Yeah, obviously that that was the plan. And and seeing, I saw a lot of it up close and personal. And, and there was... Here's the thing, guys, there, there are a lot of really authentic people in those spaces, but it doesn't take away from the, some of the pathologies around it that are unhealthy and unhelpful. And also too, truthfully, I felt like I was breaking natural laws in my body by even how much I was traveling. Hmm. Like, and, and, and it was like, the more you traveled, the more you were rewarded, the more you were favored, the more influence you would have, the more like holy you're seen or given over to the call of ministry. And here I am just like dying, suffering from like anxiety and depression and not even realizing it, but I'm so busy. Mm. I'm booked. Y'all, I'm booked. I'm making coin. I'm booked. I got the gigs. I'm standing on the big platforms. I have the respect of Christian leaders around the world, but... But it's costly. But it's costing me my peace. Your your soul points. I heard that on a Pete Holmes podcast. I can't remember Mm. who the guest was, but they were talking about soul points and like how you spend them on a creative endeavor or whatever you're doing. And sometimes it's like, it's just not a good transaction. Like you're spending too many soul points for what you're getting back. Exactly. Mm. That's exactly how, how I felt. So my soul had been tattered and tired. And then I realized what was working and what wasn't working. And that forces a deconstruction. And so, so Cosmos really was an acknowledgement of the things in me that needed to come together that weren't coming together. It was the coming together of matter, mind, body, soul. And so I, I started with a theme and idea for the record. I always start that any record that I do, I always have a concept or a name or a title. So I had Cosmos. I was like, when I read it, I said, there it is. So my song in the gray is a song about going on this journey, this wilderness journey. The, the first line, it actually, this song was the quickest song I wrote on the album. It took me 45 minutes to write it top to bottom. And I had, I had a one person come in and edit a word or two, but like to make it stronger, but it was done in 40 minutes. Um, I had the piano melody. My producer came up with it and I took a pen and a pad and a headphones walked around the garden. Actually, we were in Carol King's offices. <laughs> we were recording in her offices, believe it or not, when we did in the gray. And, uh, she had like her office at the time is this studio, excuse me, this house in studio city and uh, a little beautiful backyard garden. And I just walked around her 
garden offices <laughs> and wrote this song in the gray in 45 minutes. Maybe her, like some, her spirit was there or something. I don't know. Mm-hmm. Um, and the first lyric is I walk through desert plains here on the open range, feel like a re- renegade looking to run away here in the wilderness. I'm coming face to face with all that I've done and who I will become. And it's kind of this acknowledgement of to go on this journey, you pay a cost. You often look like the renegade. You look like the scoundrel. You look like the one that's leaving the faith. But truthfully, you're looking for the place where everything begins to come together again and begins to make sense, which the course is the place, the place where my eyes are finally open and the winds of change are blowing. The place, the place where I love you in the mystery and you rewrite my history in the gray. Um, And that for me kind of typified probably better than any song in the record every song carries a mood in my interior cosmos but that one probably is the manifesto for sure i walk through desert plains here on the open range feel like a renegade looking to run away here in the wilderness i'm coming face to face with all that
Vancouver, William, when you came through this past summer and I guess it was this fall in September and we we played this house show and we packed it out and I remember some people after hearing you sing that and while you were singing that weeping, like tears were coming Mm. to their eyes and I remember at the end when when you and I were doing a little bit of Q&A and talking with people and stuff that that it seemed like there was so much permission in that room when you sang in the gray because of, of how painful that is to be there, to leave something you've known, um, leave something that's felt certain, leave something that's been a part of your community, your identity. And when you see someone else doing that and making, making space for you to go into that space, it feels so much less lonely and I remember people mm. being so touched by you naming the process of being in the gray and being the renegade and finding the place and rewriting the mystery and all of these beautiful things that often feel terrifying because they've been outlawed or because they're alone. So mm. whenever I think of that song, yes. I just, I go back to that house on that rainy Vancouver fall evening where people were so, so, so touched by you sharing your journey. Yeah, that was a beautiful night. Thank you for sharing Mm -hmm. that. Often when I think of our history, I used to think it was all so black and white. And then I realized it actually was all a bit more in the gray. (laughs) And it's hard because you want to look back on your past and, and see it for all of its brilliance, right? Or all of its clarity. But truthfully, there's often more going on than we realize. Like my sister just sent me this picture the other day of, well, a family picture of us. I was probably 10, 12 years old, maybe. And uh, the face... I was making in the picture, my sister, she sent it to me. And then she said, look at this prophetic quirk on your face. She was like, what was that about? And it was kind of this look on my face of like, what are we doing? Why are we here? What is actually going on? And we we took it in front of this church that we were going to. Uh, My dad was the pastor and not, you know, too much longer after that, we went through a pretty terrible church split, but I kind of felt like it was in the air. Like I kind of knew like there was something going on here. Everyone's saying this, this is black and white. This is right. This is wrong. This is whatever. And something in me just went, there's something, there's an underlying tension here that's going on that we're not acknowledging at 10 years old. Like you could see it on my face, but actually there's so many pictures from that time. I realized I had the same look. I always feel like I've always had that kind of premonition and knowing. And so to put it to music, to describe the journey of questioning, the journey of being aware and awake and seeing what other people aren't seeing and that's kind of been signature for my life. And so I feel like this song is that manifesto and that touches me that people feel that connected mm-hmm. to it or it typifies their journey as well. Well, you've really given us so much of yourself and, and the pain and the beauty that you carry. And I can hear it all in this record and it's magnificent, William, really. Mm. Just going to say thank you for the risks that you took and for sticking with it. Like four years is a long time. It doesn't sound tired, though. It sounds vibrant and full of hope. Oh, that's good. Because I told myself if I didn't release it this year, I'd, I'm done. <laughs> I did. I said, I was like, this record is, I, I'm done. If, it, if I don't force myself to release this, then um, it's over. Uh, start another record. Yeah. So thank you for acknowledging that. Mm. 
Well, I would have I would have stolen it from you and called it my record. <laughs> <laughs> Another legal battle ensues. <laughs> what are you going to say, Mike? Oh. I'm laughing because you're so. Is this the trolls that are like, Mike? You got to stop interrupting people. Is that what's happening right now? I don't want to interrupt people. He, he gets this feedback. It was a it was a Twitter gate. It was a gate level scandal. Anyway, uh, like he's Twitter saying, gate. Mike is always it, interrupting people. Yeah, I edit this show. I know that natural conversation has interruptions. Mike is not the worst of us by by any stretch of the imagination. Everybody on this show is pretty good. I've been purposefully interrupting more lately because I've realized in listening to some good podcasts that it happens a lot. It keeps the show moving. Well, Michael, you just sound like another white man taking up air. There you go. See, you just did it. And it's great. (laughs) (laughs) It's great. It keeps it moving. Well, I've been aiming for zero interruptions for for about uh, 10 or 12 episodes. If only people could see the cringe that happens when Mike accidentally interrupts. It's not just like, it's not like nonchalant. I don't really care. It's like the man legit goes into full cringe mode when he thinks he has inconvenienced someone. And we all lose out for it. Yeah, yeah, it's true. And if anybody, yeah, and if anyone is worried that Mike is silencing me as a woman, please speak with me directly about it, and I will educate you on autism <laughs> and relationships that I have with Mike and the other men on the show, and will come to their defense ten times out of ten as a woman. Thank you, Hillary. Mike, please interrupt us. Okay, please. so. But- what I was going to say, I have a weird uh, relationship with music, uh, which I now that I know I'm on the spectrum is super helpful. So it's actually really hard for me when my friends release music because I want to hear it and I want to relate to it. But I have like a really specific listening inventory. So literally every time I write on a book, I listen to Atlas Year One by Sleeping at Last. Only <laughs> over and over for three years now, four years now. Uh, when I drive here from La Crescenta, <laughs> I day of sun. only listen to Another Day of Sun or the entire La Line soundtrack, but some days literally only the track. <laughs> it's Another Day of Sun over and over and over and over, right? So I have very specific soundtracks in my life. So I wanted to really engage this record and engage it well. And I was like, when do I have a big chunk of time consistently in the car? Well, the longest drive I do is my therapist is in Beverly Hills. Yes, he is. So it takes like like an hour one way. <laughs> yeah, from La Crescenta with traffic, yeah. Yes. Yeah, today it was like more like an hour and a half. It was oh. brutal. So... Cosmos is my pre and post therapy music. So I've heard the record like a lot. You're where all those streams are coming from. Well, I was lucky. First, I got it from you before it came out. Yeah. And I put it in my library. And then the day before the record came out, I deleted it from my library so that it wouldn't count as an iTunes match record, but go back to an Apple Music record. So it counted as streams. So, yes, I did think about how many streams you should get as part of that. I also, I download most of the records that I really enjoy, but I never download my friends' records because I always want to count as streams and not as downloads. So I just think about music royalties excessively. 
in my day-to-day listening habits. It's really nice. And Thank you. Uh, but downloads now count because it's okay to download. I think to d- download for you can do both now. You can download it if you wanted to. You can buy it and then, but still use the Apple Music. But even downloading service. on Spotify or whatever still gives you. I think it gives you more royalties now. Oh boy! Well, I don't know. I'll have Maybe. to look that That's up like- and make a new data-driven decision <laughs> to maximize my friend's personal income <laughs> based on my personal listening habits. Thank you for even thinking. But through yeah, that. not many people think about that. It's That's amazing. all I think about. So the thing like that struck me about the record. One is it's man. I just really like the movement, starting with an invocation and then the interludes. Mm-hmm. So I know, like in a record, the the most Interest is paid to songs with singing. But I'm actually most fascinated with the interludes and the tracks you chose and why. Mm. And then how that influenced the track arrangement because I don't know what listen I'm into on Cosmos, but it's it's in the the high dozens of listens. Mm. So I just I'd like to get a sense for how you came up with that structure and that arrangement because it, yeah. it so the interludes, a huge part of my life. Yeah. So the interludes were a late minute addition to the album. It was probably one of the last things I did on the record. Actually, Beyond Wave was the last thing I did on the record, and then before, right before that, was the interludes. I really wanted to tie the concept together. I felt like the concept was a little too abstract. The Cosmos record, and I, I kind of put my eggs in that basket to the point where I, I thought the concept was too vague that I was going to change the album title to in the gray, like the whole record, just call it in the gray, which is a great title too. And I probably would have been happy doing that, but I kind of felt committed to this process and to this weird phrasing that just stuck out to me. So cosmos, if you look in the original Greek of John three sixteen, it's worded for God. So loved the cosmos. That's the original mm-hmm. wording in the, in the Greek there um, that he gave his only begotten son. And so there was something to That's me. That's way better. Yeah. For God so loved the, <laughs> for God so loved the cosmos. That, that English translation is terrible. Yeah. Anyway, go God so loved the world. No, no, it's the cosmos. All of creation gets liberation. Mm. And, um, and so that's why I, I stuck again with it and said, you know, I want to drive this point home. And I want to drive the point home from invocation to benediction. I wanted to kind of take some of those liturgical phrases, phrases that I grew up with. Like if I were in a, uh, a, a traditional church of God service, especially funerals and, and some of the more like ordinations and stuff, they would have invocations by this person. And they would specifically ask Reverend Bishop, Dr. So-and-so is going to come and give the invocation. And then, you know, deacons, like witchcraft. Oh, In- well, invocation, invocation. It's a, it's a, it's <laughs> a church history word. <laughs> I can't. No, don't they? I'm I guess sure they invoke spirits. They they invoke stuff. Yeah, I mean the word is yeah. It can be used in many different ways, but it has ties to church tradition, uh, and as well as benediction. And so I had a few people that I, I wanted to open the record with. Uh, I wasn't even in contact with. Uh, I was in contact with um, the woman who runs James Baldwin Estate, but I couldn't find a clip that I really liked enough to put at the beginning. And long story short, I chose James Cone, who passed recently, founder of Black Liberation Theology. I ran across this video of him um, talking about, to me, what represented black theology, which is uh, the resilient spirit of humanity, that no matter what's going on, there's still a humanity and a hope and a dignity inside of you. And so when I found this clip of uh, Bill Moyers talking to James Cone from like the 90s, it it struck me. It was, to me, a, such a consolidation of black theology, the best of black theology that I grew up with. And it, it fit perfectly with the first track on the album, which was Beyond Wave, which was basically Beyond Wave is a song that describes 
the scapegoat and it's the song about feeling crucified but then finding your power and rising up which for me felt like a lot of the last couple of years so i wanted the invocation to be from the founder of black liberation theology which a lot of people still don't know who james cone is i really wanted to highlight him and his work and even his recent passing to let people know that there is a humanity that inside of you that no one can kill Wow. No matter who thinks they can take it from you, like Richard Rohr says, right? There's that, it's that immortal diamond that no one can give it to you and no one can take it away. Yeah. And uh, that is the best that theology has ever given me when I think of my childhood and my grandfather and my dad and like the preaching that they would do was like, there's nothing that, no, that is the spirit of Christ inside of you. Like no one can take that and rob that of from you. You are looking at it from the perspective of those who win. You have to see it from the perspective of those who have no power. In fact, God is love because it's that power in your life that lets you know you can resist the definitions that other people are placing on you. Nobody knows my sorrow. Sure, there is slavery. Sure, there is lynching, segregation. But glory, hallelujah. Now that glory, hallelujah, is... The fact that there is a humanity and a spirit that nobody can kill. When you don't have the guns, when you don't have the military power, when you have nothing, how do you keep going? How do you know that you're a human being? You know because there's a power that transcends all of that. And as long as you know that, you will resist. The benediction was taken from a YouTube video that I saw with Eva Maria Lewis this teen teenager she's in college now teenager she was a teenager she was 18 years old oh my gosh yeah oh my gosh yeah yeah she did sorry she did a ted talk that blew me away it's nine minutes long guys go look at it it's called uh chicago a land of wilderness and oasis yeah not while you're driving oh you guys can't youtube (laughs) while you're driving yeah oh my gosh like it'll i i was i cry every time i hear it Mm. Mm. it's beautiful her poetry is beautiful. She describes her educational experience having to be bused um, or take a train from the south side of Chicago to north Chicago. Where So she said, I lived on a daily basis between Oasis and Wilderness, meaning the south side of Chicago being a place of wilderness. Economic divestment has just rendered it like there aren't food. There's not food. There's like it's a food desert. It's a uh, uh, educational hazard. (laughs) Like there's so much violence. Mm. And she talks about it being rooted in the economic divestments that were happening to that city and she, and the human rights violations that subsequently have been happening ever since. So if you sit her on a panel and she talks about this next to a woman from Syria and you know, there's going to be no difference in this story, which is wild because Chicago is a great American city. And so at the end, which is what got me, which is why I put it on the record she starts describing the vision of Oasis, meaning what does it look like to have entire cities that experience health, wellness, prosperity, flourishing, they're invested in, every child has a roof, you know, every school has textbooks, um, super practical stuff, you know, the, you know the, where the hood is actually seen as a real community. <laughs> and that's what she does. She gave dignity to urban communities by that speech. And I wanted to end it there because to me, it felt reminiscent of the biblical narrative that you see in the prophets of Isaiah talking about rebuilding 
cities and ancient ruins and raising up former foundations and and that where there's been desolation god is going to bring a new bloom to the desert right like you see you hear all these prophetic promises all the way to revelation in the new jerusalem and this eternal city that comes down from heaven that speaks of this river of god that heals the nations right and i just feel like as christians we've lost our moral imagination we we've lost the dream of the new jerusalem we've mm. lost our ability to r- see the world through the eyes of hope again and C.S. Lewis to me had it. Madeline LaEngle had it. Like some of these great writers really espouse. That's why we love them because they were leading us to the place of inclusion, to the place of oasis. And uh, to hear it from a teenage black girl to me, though, just represent her humanity, uh, represented something so subversive in our modern political moment, and but also represented something so beautiful and hopeful. So I wanted to end it with her. I reached out to her. She's a sweetheart. I got her information. We talked. And she just actually messaged me yesterday and she was so blown away mm-hmm. by the, her poetry. She said her mom, she sent it to her mom and she said her mom was, was so impacted by it to hear her poetry from the Ted talk to music. And, mm-hmm. you know, it was our friend Charles Jones on B3 Oregon, right? Playing that behind it. And it was beautiful. So to me, beginning to end, it takes you from the individual humanity. The invocation takes you from the resiliency of though I've been, though there's slavery, though there's lynching, though I've felt crucified or scapegoated. And then brings you to the universal dream of Oasis that we all can be free. And then right before that is we'll all be free, which pairs next to it, right? The dream of going from the beginning of the record of my deep particularity and then moving through my internal cosmos into the greater cosmos of humanity and moving us there. That's why I think it's a masterpiece. And I did it using black voices. My work will not be finished until there exists no community in wilderness. The ultimate goal is a world where every community falls in the category of oasis. Imagine that. Imagine a Chicago, a country, a world where there exists nothing but oasis. Imagine a world where the only thing we have to dodge while outside are raindrops. The bucket boys, the elote man, and the corner store owners are all seen as entrepreneurs. There are no potholes, but fertile soil capable of cultivating produce that may feed an entire community. And there is no need to escape the hood because the hood loves us just as much as we love it. There are four grocery stores within walking distance. Every school has the means to invest in their children. Every child has a chance. Every house has a roof. Every person has a job fit to provide for their entire families. Health, cultivation, education, nourishment, and safety are all within reach. We don't live in this world, but we can. It is imperative that we hold each other accountable to make the vision of Oasis a reality. And only then, after we cultivate bountiful land together, will bullets not be necessary for survival. Thank you. Yeah, and the interludes all throughout, I have my mom on a, on a voicemail, which, mind you, the day I moved into my little bungalow in the Hollywood Hills that I found, the day before, I was supposed to catch a flight to Detroit for a funeral, and I had such a bad anxiety attack that I could not get on the flight. And 
I was overwhelmed at the time. I didn't know I was getting my, my place. So I was, that's what was triggering. Cause I wasn't sure if I was going to get the place. And I was basically homeless. I moved, you know, I was back in LA again and I was homeless. And, um, my mom called me, my, I told my sister I wasn't coming. And then my mom called me and she left me that voicemail, which is very typical of my mom and what she would do and how she would pray over me and, uh, encourage me. And so I really, when I heard it, I didn't think much of it. I just kept it in my voicemail. And then when we were thinking about, uh, interludes for the record, me and the producer, I remember with the voicemail and I said, you know what? I want my mom mm-hmm. to be on this record too. And, um, yeah. And the rest is just simply me describing a little bit in a jumbled way, but me talking to some friends, we just put it on the iPhone and I just started talking openly. It's about an hour conversation and explaining the last few years of my spiritual evolution and that's what you're hearing mm. kind of me jumble through the, like in, in, and the song placement with the everything, it's all going from darkness to light from shadow to light. I feel like the first half of the record is shadow and the second half enters into light just as the way the cosmos is constantly, or the planet is constantly moving in circular motions of shadow and light. And mm. I feel like that's our spiritual evolution and our, our personal journeys is to move from shadow to light and to go back into shadow. Like it's constantly no shit. Yeah. That's why the record is taking you through that. So the first interlude with me speaking is shadow and light and it describes that. And then the next one is my mom's prayer. Then it moves into this 42nd song called going to make it, which is a response to my mom's prayer. Then it moves into the transcendent moment of in the, or in the gray leads you into the transcendence of light, the way and cosmos. And then new forms is basically kind of the, the flipping of that, like how everything is always moving in forward motion and everything is ultimately for reformation, uh, reforming that which was and making it new. And, and then we go into shine on us, which feels like just a bright of light, like just kind of peeking through the darkness. And then it goes into declarations of uh, edge of time that I will always love you in, in the shadow and the light um, and the affirmation of the whole journey into um, never let me go the cosmic reassurance into BAM will all be free. The universal inclusion of all things. There's a world at war caught in suffering silent casualties Oh God grant us peace in these sleepless nights I can hardly breathe despite brutality I know that we'll be free I know that we'll be free So let the light and keep it shining Let it break into the darkness All the love dares us to see We'll all be free In these desperate times Love will hold us Have no fear So we lay our head down To wash their feet When we see our brother Oh, we'll all be free Yes, we'll all be free Yeah Let the light keep us shining Let it break into the darkness All the love tells us to see Shining, let it break into the darkness. All the love tells us to see.
I apologize to all of you who cannot ask your people who make records why they are structured in that way because <laughs> oh man that's so helpful I have such a a left brain view of the world that when I incorporate art I start taking it into its little constituent pieces and I like I love it not all artists are willing to when they'll help articulate kind of the larger mm-hmm. arc for me because otherwise it yeah. is it is it's hard to see that that vast scape yeah. with the microscope I used to look at things. And this is why albums matter to me versus just yeah. the single driven industry that we now have is, you know, Prince said, you know, like black lives, like books, albums still matter mm. <laughs> because they do. Albums really matter because they're te- like we forgot how to tell stories with music. Now I feel like we've reduced music to these, you know, jingles and like ringtones and like, you know, give me a song and tingle, you know, like, like tickle my senses for a moment. Mm-hmm. Make me feel good for a second. Right. But we have no metaphor anymore. We have mm-hmm. no story. And albums do that more so than simply one song. They can t- take you through a whole range of emotions. And that's what Cosmos is meant to do. It's to take you through your emotions and your it's to take you through spiritual descent into spiritual ascent and to move you. So, so for some people where they're at in their journey, they're going to resonate with the descent more and they're not going to really maybe care about the ascent. And then the people who've gone through the descent are going to need the ascent. They're going to need to go higher Mm -hmm. and transcend. Mm -hmm. And wherever you are, and some people are going to love it all immensely. And so the thing I wanted to do was I wanted you, Mike, when you heard the record, I wanted you to pick it up again in six months and resonate with songs that you weren't resonating with when you first heard it because you're in a different season. Yeah. And you're in a different part of your evolutionary journey. And those songs that you're like, oh, that's cool. But you don't really care for them as much, which no one, let's just be honest, no one really loves every track on a record usually. Some people do if it, it resonates. And he's like, maybe I think I do. <laughs> which just try to play them out of order and see how I react. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Which some people do. They're like, oh, I like this song, this song, this song. I like, th-. you know, people, that's fine. You don't have to like, no one has to like every song on the record. But I wanted the record to be so compact in a way where you couldn't divorce any of it from the other. And you had to sit with it as a whole because I think we don't give ourselves time to do that anymore with projects. This may be me romanticizing an era of music, but I like the idea of music and, and an album in particular, not only the storytelling and and the metaphor, but being political, speaking to what's happening now in the world with, with an eye on where you want things to go. And in that way, I think about it being kind of like scripture, like it all needs to be seen through the lens of what's happening around us. And so even you choosing the voices of your family and other, other people of color and, and amplifying those voices, I think of as being in such a significant political statement that needs to be heard. And for people, kind of the huge numbers of people who are leaving the evangelical church, for them to have music too. And to look at how that's, this record might sit at this time and space differently than it would have, you know, if it came out 20 years ago because of what's happening in your context. And so both telling a story about the individual journey and like the biopsychosocial spiritual development of a human and these cycles that we go through of descent and ascent, but also it sounds so ripe for right now. Yeah, I agree. You know, truthfully, I'm glad the record's out now than two and a half years ago when it was originally slated to be released. I think the record was was ahead of its time, actually. And I say that because I, I do think 
there are moments that foretell and that are great. And that record in a lot of ways would have foretold, but um, sometimes the greatest impact isn't to foretell. It's to state in the moment when something is happening. And so truthfully, I do think this record was meant for now more than two and a half years ago. And I think the way I was writing was I was writing this album for what was coming more than what purely was, or I had just experienced. And I didn't realize that I was doing that um, until I started going through some personal struggles that allowed me to then realize how much my lyrics were speaking to what was coming. I think that's kind of the joy of art. So this album taught me, I thought I was making this album. And in a lot of ways, this Mm. album taught me, taught me something about myself as an artist, a producer, a um, now a business owner, (laughs) a master owner. It taught me something about myself, but it and on the business music side, but it really taught me about spiritual progression. And my art has always been connected to my spiritual journey, being a worship leader. I never released a song that not only did I not believe in, but that didn't feel like a prophetic word for the moment that we were living in. Every song that I released was a wave of consciousness for that moment of time. And the way it resonated with people and people that have known my work for eight, ten years know that to be true they know that when that song was released this is what happened it made us feel this you know and so i think if you judge my worship career from beginning to end right now or present i think you will see that the spiritual evolution had been happening before and now to me i feel like this is a monumental uh, milestone and and almost like a to use the kindle language going from first tier to second tier (laughs) in a funny way this album feels uh, it's having a totally different conversation than the one I was having eight years ago about faith in God. Mystery, oh mystery Show us what we need to see Light the way home Light the way home Mystery mystery show us what we need to see light the way home light the way someone who asked you if this was a Christian record? 
Um, yeah, obviously we know that word comes with a lot of baggage, but I would say it's it's a acrostic record. I that's what I call it. I say that this acrostic. Acrostic. I took the word from Tehard de Chardin. It's basically another way of saying Christ-centered, but Christ being the the invisible foundation of the universe. That's what it's. I think. Christic. Yeah. I like it. Instead of a mystic, I think of myself as a Christic. A Christic? Yeah. Yeah. I'm a Christic. Meaning, you know, mysticus can be very vague and, and there's many religious traditions it can conjure up, but I feel pretty solidly centered in a type of Christic, Christic tradition, which some would just say Christian. That's fine. But even that carries a type of stigma to it that I don't necessarily buy into. So I would say Cosmos explores spiritual terrain that um is not commonly discussed and would probably only be discussed by somebody who sees themselves as a christic mystic type (laughs) (laughs) can you be a crudist (laughs) you are a crudist i can be a crudist too um so yeah this is a christian record meaning christ is at the center of all things he is the divine center i believe and uh, or to me is the that's the metaphor that I use to describe reality. So yeah, it's a Christian record, but Christ is implied without having to be spoken. I actually had a more traditional worship song too to go on the record, and I took them off because I actually didn't want. Um, though Cosmos can be interpreted, the title track can be interpreted as a worship song, like a corporate worship song. I, I had two more that would have definitely lent the record, built the record um, to feel more like a corporate worship album. And I took three songs, actually now three. Yeah. I took all the corporate worship songs off the album Mm. that even though they were produced pop, I still was like, no, this still feels a little too corporate worship Mm. because I wanted Christ to be implied without being directly stated. And you just don't like that cash. Yeah. Well, obviously (laughs) listen, (laughs) listen, y'all. I, I, I believe in securing the bag like everybody else. However, if the choices I have made in my life, have not always been money related. <laughs> the types of things I espouse publicly do not lend towards me making cash, especially coming from the Christian space. So That's that kind was of the defining characteristic of a host of the Liturgist podcast. <laughs> yeah. Really. Being on the Liturgist podcast does not make me more popular in the Christian space. <laughs> This is a podcast for people who like to sacrifice, <laughs> actively sacrifice public income potential yeah. in exchange for speaking honestly <laughs> about what they believe. Exactly. Because, uh, I mean, it's just funny. The amount, I, I won't even say it. I won't even dignify names and spaces. But I could be, I have had invitations to be in spaces where if I just pretended, I could be raking it in. Like, mm. I, you know, even in the last couple of years, like if I just simply didn't talk about that if i simply presented a certain way and just stayed quiet about other things i could be the main worship leader at that back that big church i could be the recording with that big artist i could be so unfortunately so talking about bill osteen's saddlebag church <laughs> i think that's a confluence i think that's a confluence of, of ministries that you're talking about <laughs> which by the way <clears throat> Which, by the way, shout out to Lakewood Church because they play my songs all the time. And I actually really love those people there. So there you go for that. But um, no, I could be doing a lot of other things that could make me money. And I'm trying to figure out a way to make money and be honest. And that is my that is that was also part of my integration for Cosmos. All things coming together was I, I had a friend tell me who's been in the music industry, the pop world for like 15 years. And 
he actually told me, he said, for the first, he goes, when this album comes out, it'll be the first time you ever make clean money. Wow. Wow. And I went, whoa. Oof. What's that like to hear? <laughs> I didn't realize my money was dirty before. <laughs> but actually, in a lot of ways, you know, uh, you know, anytime you, you do Christian music, you have to present a certain way. And, and there's a level of dishonesty in that. Whether, no matter how intentional or sincere you are, there is a, a part of you that you don't bring forward because it makes other people feel uncomfortable. Especially as a worship leader, you have to be all things for all people. You are not an artist. So I made a decision. I'd rather be an artist than a worship leader. And I haven't looked back since. I still occasionally lead worship, but not as much anymore because they want you to be a worship leader, not an artist. Mm. I you probably don't know anything about that. <laughs> I don't know anything about it. Did, oh, you used to lead worship. That's right. I forgot. <laughs> wow, it's been a while since we just sang "I'm a Friend of God." <laughs> you know, I see the compromises that Christian artists make all the time. But I think, I think, I don't know, like a purist way of making money that doesn't have some form of, you you have to present only certain things. I mean, if you're a, if you're a banker, you don't, you can't show up to work topless. Well, they're immoral, right? (laughs) Bankers are immoral. Amoral or immoral? Immoral. I mean, yeah. I'm just saying what, any job you have to like, you, if you're an artist, I guess an artist is like, I, there's a difference between being pragmat, uh, like a pragmatist, right? Like working, like in making compromises that are built around integrity with any career or field. Right. I, I, I don't think compromise is not a bad word or a dirty word to me. Yeah. Uh, compromise comes from good faith, right. To meet in the middle and to, to build bridges and meet people in the middle. And I think that is a, a moral thing to do um, is to, surrender and limit part of yourself for the space and inclusion of another um, and their desires and wants and will. Um, and actually I would, I would even argue, I, I hope this doesn't come across Christian music bashing. Cause there, I, I know a number of artists that are in the Christian space that are very authentic and, and very plugged into their calling and identity. And it feels it's one for them. It's not a fake thing for them. Um, I think the world around it can do whatever, but them as artists, I, I do know several at least that are very sincere and pure around it. But there is a compromising. I would often say though, those people tend to be (laughs) white and (laughs) like they fit the image anyway. So there's nothing for them to, you know, to be stolen of them. Like they're, they're like celebrated in the space where I think people of color and all sorts of different people that sit in different intersections uh, struggle to feel like they can bring themselves fully forward in those types of spaces. So for me, it's hard because I see some of my white friends in the Christian music industry who are really authentic and the space celebrates them in that authenticity. And I go, Mm. wow, what a dream (laughs) Mm. that a whole structure that ignores and makes invisible other people or doesn't celebrate as much other people can celebrate you. So it's it's complex uh, around it. Now, why you as a white man couldn't make it work out. (laughs) Too honest. I'm being funny. <laughs> I see you in the mystery, in every possibility. I'm ready to explore the depths of you.
my hope for Cosmos is I would love for people to take their headphones, go walk in a park, drive around your car, listen. But it's very it's better on headphones. I I would actually say it's more personal. Um, that they would take time for themselves, that they would allow the fragments of who they are to potentially come together. I pray this piece of art would encourage folks to not feel crazy, to enter into the door of mystery, and to know that it's not overwhelming. You can be known and seen in the unknown. I dream of a new world where people are valued, that there's security, well-being, mm-hmm. dignity, and respect for all people. And I pray that this music makes people feel seen and they feel that security in the cosmos because it's scary out here and it, we often feel alone. I often feel alone, but I really want people to know they're not alone. And I hope this record can be a companion on a difficult journey. That's my prayer for Cosmos. William, I love you. I love this record. And I'm so, so, so proud of you. I can't wait for everyone to listen. Thank you, Willery. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, it's a great record, man. And I I dream that it does have commercial success for you as well, because you're entering a brave space. We talk about brave space quite often. You're entering a brave artistic space, um, which I know firsthand when you sing about spirituality too much. A lot of doors slam in your face, usually in the in industries, and when you talk about it in ways that's not conventional, that's not middle of the road, generic cookie cutter Christian music, or whatever. Um, all the rest of the doors <laughs> usually slam. Um, so I love how bold artistically you are, the vision that you had, the amount of work and love and uh, soul that you put into this. And I just hope that it finds the right audience because there's definitely the audience that will resonate with it. And I hope the audience makes the, uh, makes the industry like pay attention and Mm. like, uh, it's okay to, to have music that doesn't fit so cleanly into any of your boxes, industry, music industry. (laughs) I, I hope that it, that's what my hope is that it finds the people because there, it's definitely going to do all those things that you said you hope to do in the right people's ears. Hmm. So uh, that's why we wanted to do a podcast about it, because we want to get it into more ears. Thank you. Never giving up on me. Even when I run away, you're the one I can't escape. You are the only one, you're the only one to fight for my heart. The light to record is Cosmos by William Matthews, and if you're impatient to listen, don't worry at all. You can actually click on the show notes for this episode, or we'll have links to the records on common streaming and download platforms. Hey guys, another way you can help me with Cosmos is to go to your favorite streaming site, whether it's Apple Music or Spotify. Search William Matthews, you can hit the follow button. 
Then, all you do is find Cosmos, save it to your libraries, and add your favorite songs to your favorite playlist. That'll help a lot. That'll help get streams up. And it'll also help the algorithm. Because all of this stuff is flammable. Yeah. I promise on my interstellar melanin, I'll come find you and add this to your spaceship's playlist for reminder. I'm a, I'm a eagle scout of doubting hearts. Yeah. I'm a bounty hunter for the young at heart. Yeah. I'm a 100 keeper from the start. Yeah. I'm a son of a gun with a gun for a heart. Yeah. And I wrote for you, I wrote this note for you Can't smoke this in hopes that it get into your bones marrow So you know you know So you know you know I ain't going nowhere yeah. You're always ready for the chase Never giving up on me